0: This episode is brought to you by Dentons Canada. From startups to industry icons, Dentons acts for a wide variety of companies in both the public and private realms. As the world's largest law firm, Dentons can provide its global reach to your business. Visit Dentons.com for more details.
1: Welcome to The Frontier, a podcast series brought to you by Cap Intel, dedicated to bringing you the latest insights, innovations, and investment philosophies from the professionals who invest your money. Today we have Icecaps Chief Investment Officer, Keith Dicker on the podcast. Every year anywhere
2: from 80 to 90% of mutual fund managers will not perform as well as their index, they underperform. And then when you net out uh, taxes as well as expenses, it's even more. So an active mutual fund manager, it's not a winning bet. Once the bond market really begins its crisis and starts to break, that's when sovereign countries are not able to fund themselves. So for example, this happened in Italy back in 2012. You know, Their long-term rate went from around 35 to 8% within
1: months, and then boom, they were shut out of the market. Keith is a portfolio manager with 25 years experience. He started his career in Canada with RBC Global Custody Services before moving to Bermuda where he was head of a global equities desk for a small private bank. In Bermuda, Keith worked with hedge funds on their equities, fixed income, and foreign exchange strategies. After 10 years in Bermuda, Keith came back to Canada to launch IceCap Asset Management. Keith's goal with IceCap has been to manage money for individuals the way he managed money for hedge funds.
0: Thanks for coming on the show. Sure thing, James.
2: Thanks for having me today. We appreciate it.
0: Let's uh, jump right into it. What is an exchange traded fund?
2: So, exchange traded funds or ETFs, you know, they've really uh, grown exponentially over the last number of years. And basically, what you're looking at is a way for an investor to gain market exposure, but you're doing it the most efficient way possible. And what I mean by that is, for example, if the average person they get home in the evening, they hear the Dow Jones increased by you know one percent during the day. Uh, You can get an ETF that will give you exactly that 1% return and the cost of doing that is extremely low. It's quite an efficient way for investors to get market exposure. And what I mean by that, so in the investment world, it's really divided between active versus passive. So, every mutual fund that you invest in, there's a team or individual behind that mutual fund, and they're actively making decisions to try to do better than the Dow Jones return. But what studies will show, objective studies, independent studies, uh, is that typically, you know, over every year, anywhere from 80 to 90 percent of mutual fund managers will not perform as well as their index. They underperform. And then when you net out uh, taxes as well as expenses, it's even more. So, an active mutual fund manager. It's not a winning bet. So I, I manage mutual funds myself as well, and you know you have a great year, and then the next three to four years, it's just average, it's okay, but it's it's not as good as being in an ETF. So what we want to do with ice cap asset management, uh, you know, we, we use ETFs 100 percent for our portfolios, but we see ETFs as a way for us to gain exposure to specific markets and it's the most efficient way to do it. What are managed ETFs? So what you have in the, for example, in the ETF world, same as the mutual fund world, you know, there's a whole bunch of mutual funds available and a whole bunch of ETFs. But at the end of the day, you, know, you have to decide which market you want to be in or which market do you not want to be in. And you know, for example, say you want to be in uh, U.S. equities, then you might decide okay, do you need to be in a specific sector or need a bunch of sectors and not another one. Or growth versus uh, small, sort of growth versus value, or you know the whole size strategy and stuff like that. So there are a bunch of different ETFs out there, and what investors, what they tend to find uh, to be more beneficial for them, if they actually have an active manager sitting on top. So that's the manager, such as IceCap. So we decide based on market conditions and what the client's individual objectives are. We decide where to allocate the money, when to allocate the money, and then the most effective way to do it through different ETFs. That's what a managed ETF portfolio is.
0: So it's essentially managing a series of unmanaged funds.
2: Uh, yeah. So our portfolio is for each of our clients, they have their own individual custodial account. Uh, we typically, right now, we have ten ETFs in the client's portfolio, and for us, whereas the you know most people in the industry, they have a combination of of uh, equity and fixed income mutual funds or ETFs. We also include uh, quite regularly cash as an active component as well as currency, and then when it makes sense as well, gold and commodities. So within the asset allocation world, if you're in the equity market, you're there. It's really irrelevant whether you're in US equities or German equities or small cap or large cap. You're in the equity market, that's where you are. It's really, are you gonna add additional asset classes And the benefits of doing that, of course, you can reduce the correlations between everything combined, which will, uh, you know, reduce your overall risk exposure while maintaining your returns.
0: What are some of the advantages? I think you've already touched on a bit of this, but what are some of the advantages of managed ETFs and
2: some of the drawbacks? Well, you know, the main advantage of using an ETF is that it is the most efficient way to gain market exposure. You know, you're going to outperform 90% of the mutual funds out there. A uh, typical mutual fund could have a management fee inside of anywhere from you know, one and one a quarter percent all the way up to two and a half, three percent. Whereas you can get an ETF where the fee could be as low as 0.03%. So it's extremely cost efficient. Um, in terms of other benefits of using ETFs for managers like us, we're able to very quickly uh, shift or rotate from one asset class to another. They trade on an exchange, so for us it's buying or selling during any time of the day we, that we want to, and we do it across all client portfolios. Whereas if, if you're buying a mutual fund, you're typically buying a product, and then you're, dec- you're allocating that investment decision to the individual manager within the fund, And even though there might be an equity-only manager, that's where they're going to stay. That's it. So they're not going to be allocating across one asset class to another. In terms of the pitfalls of ETFs, uh, there are a lot of bad ETFs out there. Some of them are very poorly constructed. Um, The index that they're constructed towards, it's just not a very efficient one, nothing that you would need to use. Some of them have leverage. Some of them a big tracking area where they should be. So, you know, it's not just simply buying any any ETF and you're safe. You really need to know to get under, okay, what are you holding and why?
0: So there's also a component that is quality with ETFs. I think most people don't know that quality is a factor. You just think, oh, it tracks the S&P, but you're saying that there can be some issues with its ability to track certain indexes, or even the underlying indexes that they're
2: pegging themselves to could just be inefficient. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, absolutely, For example, today in in the investment world, the biggest risk in the market today, we will talk about in a few minutes, in that there's an enormous bubble bubble right now in long-term interest rates. So long-term interest rates are gonna spike up. They're gonna surge higher. I don't mean the overnight rate from the Bank of Canada or the Fed or the BOE, anyone like that. It's a long-term rate. And so for us, for example, when we look at an ETF, you look at a bond ETF, we want to look inside, see what the duration is on it, what the credit spread is, stuff like that. But within the equity world, uh, for example, a lot of ETFs today, and they might be called, you know, the equity dividend growth ETF. And strip away the name and look inside the etf to see where the exposure is so because we know the risk in the market today are long-term rates surging higher we do a sensitivity analysis we want to see which sectors will perform very well or very poorly during that market environment that we expect and we know that the financial sector as well as the insurance sector and real estate stocks and industries like that that have that negative uh, correlation with long-term rates. So we want to look inside the ETF and see where the exposure is. So for a dividend-focused ETF, for example, a lot of them might have a lot of bank stocks in there. So we typically will look at that and we'll exit out. No, we do not want that. We don't want to be investing in the banking sector. Then we move on then to the next one. So you just can't judge it by the name or how it looks or feels or past performance. You really have to understand what's inside the ETF and why.
0: Could we just keep interest rates where they are to try to avoid this type of crash? Or what's going to force them to rise?
2: So the first thing is uh, every interest rate in the world, it, it's a function of what US rates are. So if the US ten is at 2%, then the German rate is going to be 2% minus something. Uh, same thing in Canada, plus or minus. So we, we live in a global interest rate environment. So an individual country cannot control their entire yield curve. Central banks can absolutely control the overnight rate, that's what they set. But the rest of the yield curve is, is open. Uh, prices on the rest of the yield curve are determined by the open market. So what people are willing to pay for the bond, what they want to sell that, you look at, you know, supply and demand with issuance and, and so forth. It can, but the problem since 08, 09, is that if you might, you know, everyone remember their economics course in school is, is you know, it's called the crowding out effect. So government has gone into a specific market, which is the bond market, and they become the dominant buyer. They're the buyer of last in every resort. So what happens then is after zero price discovery right now in the bond market, nobody knows what the real price of a bond is. You know, maybe it should be yielding 2% or maybe it should be yielding six percent or maybe one like nobody knows because you know the the fed the bank of england the ecp and then the bank of japan they're the ones that are buying everything aside. like they're mopping up everything so this can happen for so long but only until eventually the crisis will get broken in another part of the market so for example when you look at europe you look at the banking system european banking system it's just pieced together by some duct tape right now not even good duct tape it's been razzled around the edges. So as an example, the, Ita- the Italian, the entire Italian banking system has about 270 billion in bad losses right now, sorry, bad loan losses. And so the way the bonds or the way the, the banking world works, if you write off a loss, that's the charge to your earnings, you might have to write off your equity and so forth. The entire equity capital in the Italian banking sector is about 170 billion. So if you write off all the bad loans in Italy, which should have been done long ago, it completely it wipes out every single nickel and dime of equity in the Italian banking sector. So the math just doesn't work. So that will eventually manifest itself in whether you know you get political change or you know, a bank eventually they just can't hold it anymore. And maybe one which is what's been happening in Italy now over the last six months. But this this thing will manifest itself and you know once the talk blows off it's it's done you know it's game over so we're coming up to that you know i know it does you know it, it is a, a pessimistic view but it's a very optimistic market because you're on the right side of it which is it's pretty simple to say you know run away from trouble uh you know there's a ton of money to be made out there and the best thing about it is that the industry they either refuse to see it, they can't see it, or even worse, they're not allowed to talk about it because you know they're, they collect your money every month and put it back in the exact same product. When you're managing ETFs, the goal
0: doesn't necessarily seem like you want to beat the market outright as much as avoid when the market drops or when the indexes drop. Because I think one of the problems or one of the things that people worry about when they manage or when they invest in ETFs as a retail investor is that you're kind of along for the ride. And so if the index starts to drop, that you don't really know when to pull out. But I guess when you're managing ETFs, since you're sort of pegged at the market, the, the goal is to sort of avoid or, or limit the drops and then get back in? Or how, what's the goal when you're managing ETFs?
2: Yeah, so, so two points. First of all, with a manager like us, we're not buying a single ETF. So we, we have a portfolio that's constructed. It's an asset asset allocation across equities, uh, across fixed income and in currencies, as well as commodities and gold. So it, it's a portfolio that's what the client wants. So I mentioned earlier with wealthy people, they were really want to avoid losses. A portfolio constructed this way, you can avoid the big downdrafts. It's just the way it works. If you're holding an individual ETF, say it's on the S and P 500, then yeah, you're swimming up and down in the water of the tide, and you know it, it is what it is. However, if you're in a U.S. equity fund managed by an individual or a team, it's the exact same thing. That U.S. equity mutual fund manager, whether he's with any of the big names that we all know, he is not going to pull out of the equity market. He's benchmarked against the S and P 500 or another index, and he's going to remain fully invested at all times. So, whether if you're only holding an individual fund, whether it's an ETF, equity fund, or an equity mutual fund, you're in the same water all the time. But the equity ETF, you're still going to outperform the active guy. But you need a manager on top to decide when to you know move it out, and there are special tools available to make those decisions.
0: IceCap describes itself as a global macro manager. What does that mean?
2: In the most investors are just familiar with, you know, buying stocks or equities, or, you know, then you add some bonds to balance it out. They always focus on what are the earnings or profits or dividends being produced and and things like that. Uh, During the 80s and 90s, that's what drove markets. And people thought, okay, that's how the world will always work. And that's all you should ever focus on. But really sitting on top of all this, you have what in our world we call global macro factors, which is really the key driving point of markets. So it, the main one would be interest rates, both short-term and long-term. Then you have credit spreads. That's the difference between uh, interest rates in the Government bond market versus various parts of the corporate bond market or, or emerging market and so forth. Then you also have oil, you have currencies, inflation, you know things like that. And, and what you find over time that these are the key drivers, these are the factors that actually drive earnings for a company. These are the factors that drive interest rate decisions by the central banks and so forth. So that's what's called global, fa- global macro. What a lot of people don't realize today is that ever since the markets broke back in 08 and 09, so we're coming up on 10 years almost, earnings do not matter. The stock market continues to rise, can go higher, and it's not being driven at all by earnings. Okay, Earnings are not growing that quickly. P.E. ratios are not adjusting because of anticipation of higher earnings down the road. It's driven by what's happening in the interest rate cycle with central banks. So we have zero and negative rates across most of Europe and Japan. Then you have quantitative easing and money printing as well. So in the world today, it comes down to how are you allocating your money? Because that's being driven by the global macro factor set that's out there. And uh, that's where ETFs are so, you know, they come into so, such a great instrument to use to get that market exposure. So for firms like IceCap, we say we're global macro, we're focusing on really monetary policy and fiscal policy and different measures of inflation and so forth and deciding where to allocate the money.
0: And then why do you choose to take this global approach? What's the advantage of this versus focusing in North America or in Europe or emerging markets?
2: So this, this is what's really great about the world today. We, we are right now in the final late stages of the biggest bubble we'll ever see in our lifetime. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the industry is driving on the road using a rearview mirror. And what I mean by this is that interest rates in our lifetime, they peaked in 1982. So depending on which rate you're looking at, whether, you know, the overnight rate or mortgage rates, we'll just use 20% as an example. And so 1982 rates reached 20%. And from 1982 to today, they declined right down to zero. So when you have rates go from 20% to zero, the stock market goes up, the bond market goes up. It's, it's impossible not to make money unless you do something you know, idiotic during that time. And the problem today is that everyone in, our, everyone in the business today, they've worked during that market time. They worked in the 80s or 90s or they were trained by somebody who worked during that time. And when you sit back and think about it, you say, okay, you know, rates have come down quite a bit. The number of reasons for that, the key one has been every time there's been a crisis in the world, a financial crisis, the central banks, they would cut rates and then they would become aggressive on the fiscal side by could be lowering taxes or, you know, spending more money and borrowing and stuff like that. But where we are today ever since the crisis in 08, is that interest rates around the world, they hit zero. And then in Europe, they say, well, you know, we can bring them through the floor, you know, we'll bring them negative. So you actually have negative rates today in in five different monetary regions. And then on top of that, central banks were printing money. So by doing that, they they print money and they're buying government bonds that are being issued. And investors today don't realize is that The combination of zero and negative rates and money printing and bailouts of specifically the banking sector and the auto sector and stuff like that in the US is that it's artificially suppressed interest rates around the world. So the entire market experience of rates going from 20 to zero, which is an awesome time, an easy time to make money everywhere. Now we're going to have the opposite of that. And you have the opposite of that, that's when long-term rates are going higher. And the way the math works if the 10 year, for example, the 10 year rate in Canada is currently around 2%, that goes from 2 to 3%, a okay, 1% increase in rates. The typical bond mutual fund or a bond ETF, the aggregate bond index, that's going to decline about 7, 8%. So by a tiny 1% move in long-term rates, you're down 7 or 8%. Now, if that's in the stock market, you say, okay, you know, big deal, that's the correction, we'll make it up. But long-term rates, they're only at 2%. So if you lose 7% in one year, that's almost three years of income just to recapture that capital loss that you incurred. So what we expect to happen is that long-term rates are going to go from 2 to 3 to 5 to 8 or 9% very, very rapidly. And when you circle back then with a the global macro approach, just understanding is that the way money and capital is invested around the world, it's really two buckets of it. That there's government money, public sector money, and there's private sector money. Government money, it's sticky. It's never gonna move from where it is. It'll always be invested that way and in, in, in final. Individuals and endowment funds, sovereign wealth funds and so forth, we run away from trouble. That's the way the really rich guys in the world do. And as soon as the bond market starts to crack, then we're running out of the bond market and seeking safety. And as ironic as it sounds, is that you know, we've been trained over our careers is that you know the bond market is that's a safety investment to make. If you're getting close retirement, you know, you and you're conservative, buy bonds, don't buy stocks, we're heading to the exact opposite environment because the risk today is in the bond market and not in the stock market.
0: And that seven percent decrease or sort of beta that that exists. Does there any diminishing effect on that? I mean, if it goes up 2%, will bond markets go down 14 and then 321? Or does that decline at all? Would a 7 or 8% increase in interest rates result in a 7x difference or decline in the bond markets itself?
2: Yeah, it has to do with duration. So when you look at your bond mutual fund or bond etf or even if you're in your portfolio of of bonds you have to work out what your average maturity is you know just keep it simple and if you're holding bonds just say they mature on average seven years so it's you know it's 2017 say the bonds mature in you know 2023 that's a duration of seven so for every one percent move in long-term rates you multiply that by seven to get your your gain or loss from it you have that inverse relationship with long-term rates going up so as an example Last November, after the uh, American election, uh, the long uh, the ten-year rate in the U.S. went from 1.7 to 2.4 percent in a matter of about 48 hours. So that created about 1.7 trillion in losses around the world. So a 0.7 percent rise in long-term rates just created massive chaos. I was sitting down with uh, in San Francisco with one of the world's largest fixed income managers, like a couple of days after this. And we're all in the room and I said, okay, lads, listen, you know, this is what happened. Rates went up 0.7% on a scale of 1 to 10 with 1 being everything is great. 10 being is the worst day you can ever imagine. You know, what's the last three days been like? And they all looked at each other and they said, oh yeah, this was an 8. And I said, this is great. This is all I need to know. So it was the best research meeting I've had in my career. Because if you think about it, if long-term rates go up 0.7% in a matter of two days, this caused the biggest fund manager in the world to say, holy smokes, we're screwed, right? And so if you look back, we historically had long-term rate been? they've never been this low before. So it's like, you can show this chart to an eight-year-old kid, you know, they recognize pattern recognition. That's what it is. You look at it, if something has come down, it's going to start to go up. And if you look at the reason why long term rates are down, it's because it's been, you know, long, yield curve has been suppressed through quantitative easing, money printing, you know, from the Fed, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, and the, the ECB. Should
0: the bond market decline or begin to crash, where does their money go? What do people do? How do they react?
2: It's going to be very messy when it first starts. I, I expect this to happen in Europe first. The, Europe is an absolute gong show right now. Everything's been quiet over the summer because it's been instructed to stay quiet until the German election is finished. That's just the way it works. So what, once that begins to unravel, typically what happens in, you know, to preserve your capital in, in, you know, in my world, money will, in the fixed income world, it will first, it'll move into treasuries, U.S. treasuries and it'll go down the yield curve. So if you're holding a 10-year maturity treasury or a bond, you might sell that and move down to a five-year or, or three-year, something like that. So that happens all over the world. So initially, you get a flight into short-term bonds, but also into US dollar treasury. So the US dollar becomes very strong, everything else declines. But then on top of that, once the bond market really begins its crisis and starts to break, that's when sovereign countries are not able to fund themselves. So for example, this happened in Italy back in 2012. You know, Their long-term rate went from around 3.5% to 8% within months, and then boom, they were shut out of the market. Italy could not borrow not one euro on the open market. And then that spread over to Spain as well, and, and Portugal and so forth. So we know we're going to go back to that environment again. And then the most ironic thing about it is that because the bond market it just dwarfs the stock market. When money starts fleeing trouble, in this case, it's the bond market. It has to go somewhere. It just can't, you know, flap around in the wind, and it's going to go into equities. That's where it's going to go. So it's kind of ironic because, you know, economic growth it's it's not accelerating. But right now, today, like it's not it's not dropping out of bed either. But when this begins to happen, economic growth is gonna roll over. So we'll be, over recessions will be popping along. But at the same time, though, the equity markets will be going up. And specifically, U.S. equities will go up. And when you look at the equity markets, the part of the market that will go up a lot more than the other part of the market is that anything that's not, that's not affected by long-term rates rising. So I mentioned earlier that banks and insurance companies Reinsurance insurance companies. these guys are really going to get hard, hit hard coming up, especially banks and European banks. Probably the biggest short of a lifetime coming up is in the European bank market as well as emerging market debt. I think these things are lined up right now just to make of incredible amount of money over and you just have to know how to structure properly in a portfolio.
0: So equities are then, for, for better or worse, I guess, looking to potentially have a huge increase or to continue on this this big tear they've been on for a very long time now. So what's the long-term fix? I mean, if this is going to continue to go up, presumably there could be a correction later on in equities. And so you might want to be shifting out of bonds ahead of time, potentially putting in equities to get that sort of premium as, as people rush into it and run away from the bond market. Will that then correct itself and things will level back out? Or how do you see this resolving itself in the long term?
2: Yeah, because, you know, we don't live in a linear world. And that's the problem with Western civilization and Western culture. That we think everything is linear. So if something has gone up for the last week or last year, we expect that to continue, you know, and vice versa. Uh, but we live in a cyclical world. Everything is cyclical in inner life. That's the way it works. So as you know, if, with every crisis, it always gets sorted out in the end. Uh, when the crisis, when it re- accelerates in the bond market, and specifically in, in Europe, that's where it will start and then spread. Um, you know, eventually that gets fixed. But you know, think of a totem pole because there's only three currencies that matter that matter in the world. That, that's it. And uh, for better or worse, Canadian dollar is not one of them. So you know, the world is not evolved around Canada. Uh, picture the U.S. as the as the base of the totem pole. Next you have Japanese yen and then you have Euro, these are the three currencies. So the crisis originates in the Euro first, and then it'll filter down into Yen, and then the dollar at the end of the day. So while the dollar and equities will be very strong for a while, not a long time, I mean, this could be three to five year period maybe, or maybe even 18 months. Like it, once, once you get a crisis accelerating, uh, it's you know it happens very, very quickly. So this isn't a 10-year investment, you know, it's, it's, it'll happen. Uh, but once it's the U.S. is the last man standing, then the crisis then will, will go into the U.S. Because from every fundamental perspective in debt markets, the U.S. is a complete disaster. You know, from the federal level, state level, municipal level, it, it's just so much debt has been accumulated. And at the federal level right now, you know, it exists because you know, it is the world's reserve currency and that will change. But it's just the funding levels are so short. So, for example, like the biggest tell in the world right now at the bottom right at this peak, and no one picks up on this stuff because the media is just, you know, there's no thinking behind it. Just in the last three weeks, uh, Apple, they um, they board money in Canadian dollars. they did the maple bond issuers, the first time ever. And in the media and the press, you know, the big banks, they say, hey, you know, this acknowledges that Canada is a strong economy. The Canadian dollar, it's awesome. This is you know, Apple's going to borrow in Canadian dollars. You know, right on, keep going. However, Apple are pretty smart guys. You know, if you look at their treasury, how much cash they're holding, you know, they, they dwarf the entire, you know, mutual fund industry. Apple is borrowing in Canadian dollars because they know they'll have to pay back Canadian dollars when that bond matures. So they take those Canadian dollars and they'll be shipping that back in U.S. dollars. That's just the way it will work. So they'll borrow in Canadian and they'll put that in USD, make a bunch of money on it, then pay back at a lower Canadian dollar. Apple, they also did another huge issuance in US dollars just two weeks ago. Same thing, they're gonna borrow for about 2% or less and they don't need any money. Apple is flush with cash. They do not need to borrow, but yet they're out borrowing billions because they know they can borrow now at one, one and a half, 2% and imminently long-term rates are gonna shoot up higher and then they'll have to pay back lower a lower price at, at their bond when the when it matures. So when all these signs are out there now, James, and it's an incredible market. I know we let off the conversation, they talk about ETFs and, and funds, but what you know what we share with clients, you know, IceCap, yes, absolutely, we use ETFs all the time, but that's just the instrument that we use to get market exposure because understanding where we are today in the market cycle, it's enormous. Like for example, you have a lot of these target date funds that are out there, mutual funds. And the way they work is that you know as you get closer to retirement days, the fund will like slowly turn the dial and reduce your equities, more money into the bond market. And but when you step back, if you're rational understand where the risk is today, this, this is the biggest irony out there in the world today is that as these people need to become more conservative in their investments, because retirement is coming up, they're actually putting more of the money into the riskiest market in the world. And that's what investment management was about: well, understanding what the risks are. Some scary stuff for some people
0: out there, I'm sure, but definitely good thought provoking. Within the frontier, part of our goal is to educate normal people and retail investors about some of the lessons learned by the professional money managers like yourself. In that context, did you manage money through the financial
2: crisis? What were some of the lessons you learned going through that? So the, so, the biggest lesson you learn is that, and this might be a shock to someone who's not in the, if you're in the industry, you're nodding in an agreement right now going I say this, 90 to 95% of the investment market, money is not managed. It's simply money is moved around at the fringes. It's always invested And in the arguments that, you know, back in 08 when that happened, you know, all the banks, you know, they say, well, you know, nobody saw this coming, you know, Nobody saw this coming, everyone lost money, sit tight and you'll recover. So the biggest, and and we know that though with hindsight, that's not the case. There are a lot of very sharp managers out there, individuals and teams that knew the crisis was coming. They positioned themselves properly and they preserved capital and they made a bunch of money afterwards. And so the parallel to today is the exact same, except the crisis is is in a different market. So for the average individual, you know, the two takeaways, one is that you know, most money is not being managed. So be careful what you do with it. Don't just buy a fund and buy a it because you know, you're probably going to end up in the wrong market at the wrong time. Uh, but most importantly, though, you have to understand that the market over the last 30 years has been driven by long-term rates going from 20% down to zero. So any study or research that you see or past performance over the last 25 years, just ignore it because we are entering, you know, it's, it's going to be like a mirrored economy, a mirrored financial market, a mirrored interest rate cycle and yield curve from what's happened in the past. And so maybe the funds that performed very poorly over the last 20 years, if they're still alive, you know, maybe they'll be the best ones, you know, going forward. So, you know, just share that with your investors and that, You know, we're we're headed for a uh, you know very interesting. I think it's going to be enormously exciting for the investment management industry. There's going to be uh, a lot of people losing their shirts and a lot of other people, you know, making new shirts, uh, so to speak.
0: So a little while ago, you talked about how people need to sort of get out of the bond market soon. What's your best piece of advice for a retail investor right now? How do they react? How do they avoid this bond crisis?
2: Well, they, they call it ice cap asset management and, you know, become our client. <laughs> you know, but, you know, for the average investor, it, it's tough because, you know, equities are going to have a correction. You no, know, it's, it's just the way they work. You know, we could come down now 10% and that could happen. And, uh, you know, if that did happen, you know, the market headlines are gonna be screaming, it's a market crash, you know, it's like the 30s all over again. It's 2008 and nine and you know, that, that, that's what will happen. Um, but you know, that's, that, that's a tough one. You, you buy more, you go in there, but if you're gonna be in the bond market, you, you can buy a lot of different bond funds or bond ETFs that have a very short maturity. A maturity like one, two years, three years tops. You're probably going to yield close to two percent, one and three quarters, um, and, and that's fine. You know, that's, it's a great place to park your money. For the other, you know, consideration, even though the U.S. dollar has been very weak over the last number of uh, weeks and months, again, that's just that, that's not a crash in the dollar. That's just a correction. You know, it's creating this, you know, head fake, you know, in, in the market, and, and people are running. To one side of the boat, it's starting to tip over, and they don't want to go on the other side. But this, this is going to shift pretty quickly here. So, for the average investor, I would say to them, you know, don't go reading fun fact sheets because it's backward looking. You know, just use your head and start off with interest rates in 1982, and then just sit back and see how it's gone down. And that's been the key driver. Just say, okay, where can this go going forward? So, park them
0: in sh- short term bonds. short-term bond funds or currencies or sort of outside of equity risk because there's a potential correction coming up in equities and then we also have this potential big crash
2: in the bond market so nothing's really safe yeah but I wouldn't shy away from equity markets Mm -hmm. I mean if you just say you want to put 50 percent of your money in the equity markets I I would put 25 in now and then you would start buying more over the next weeks and months I mean a real part of the market here right now is that once we get the German elections over with in October or at the end of September, uh, you know, then then that focus will shift right back to Europe. You no, know, it's no longer on you know the U.S. and you know North Korea and, and you know Trump doing this and that. It's again the way mathematics works is that the European banking system it it doesn't work and it's it's gonna come out here. So it's it's pretty easy to see where we're going, but it's gonna be a bit
1: rocky getting there. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about Keith's views on the bond market or about his paper, The Beautician, please visit icecapassetmanagement.com.
0: This episode is brought to you by Capintel, a fund analytics company helping investment professionals select the top performing funds for their clients. Industry experts nationwide trust Capintel to make better decisions faster. Find out why at
1: capintel.ca.